You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Aiken. And I'm Tim Warden. And today we have a guest that I think uh, has, has a topic that is going to be applicable to anyone in this industry, because a lot of you are going to end up being a horse owner, and you're probably going to go through a, a pre-purchase exam. So uh, our guest today is Dr. Chris Elliott. Uh, I actually started interacting with him, I guess, on Instagram first. It was one of those uh, things where he has a really inter- interesting uh, account. It's at Elliott Equine Vet, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But he he's an individual who's quite active on social media. He posts really, really good content uh, when he is posting. I think it, it's worth uh, following. He's a veterinarian. He does a lot of uh, work for the FEI or as an FEI veterinarian at competitions throughout North America. Uh, he started out in Australia, spent some time in Europe, and now he's in North America. So he has a just really cool perspective having practiced in a bunch of different areas, uh, seen the sport through a bunch of different lenses. And then uh, just the the conversation today is on pre-purchase exams. And again, it's a really interesting perspective because he has done exams sort of around the world. So you get a sense of what different people look for in different regions and, you know, how his approach to doing pre-purchases has evolved over time. Uh, So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So Dr. Christopher Elliott was born and raised in Brisbane, Australia, and he graduated from the University of Queensland School of Veterinary Science in 2007. After starting his career in Australia, Christopher moved from or to the UK to further pursue his passion for equine sports medicine. There, he undertook a residency in equine veterinary sports medicine and rehabilitation in Sydney before successfully becoming a board-certified specialist in 2017. In early 2022, Christopher joined homage Palm Beach Equine Clinic in Wellington, Florida. Away from his normal daily work, Christopher is an experienced FEI vet who has worked in over 20 countries as a private athlete vet, team vet, permitted breeding vet, and official vet. He's worked at the past three FEI Jumping World Championships, the past two Olympics, and is currently the FEI Veterinary Services Manager at Wellington International. Christopher is the author of numerous peer-reviewed veterinary journal publications, including his latest article discussing the pre-purchase examination of sport horses, which we will link to in the bio. Hi, Chris, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. I enjoy listening, and it's uh, nice to be a part of it. <laughs> awesome. It's always it's always nice to put a face to somebody who listens to us, so fun getting to meet you. Um, today, uh, I know we're going to get into um, pre-purchase exams. So can you provide your perspective on the purpose of a pre-purchase exam and how do you how you can match your observations with the goals of the owner in terms of deciding if a horse meets their needs or not? Yeah, so the pre-purchase veterinary examination um, is really about uh, providing as much information as possible to the prospective purchaser so that they can make an informed decision. Uh, you know, there are lots of factors that go into um, a buyer uh, making the decision to consider purchasing a horse and then that final decision-making process. You know, we as veterinarians, as a part of the pre-purchase, we are working for that buyer to give them enough information, as much information as possible so they can make an informed decision. We're there to essentially identify the current state of any veterinary 
um, related abnormalities and then put that into perspective about the future prospects um, and the intended use of this horse moving forward, taking into account all of the different factors associated with horses moving forward what job they're doing what discipline they're doing you know what their what the purchases aims are in terms of athletic aims training aims whether the horse is potentially a resale or not um so the key for us as veterinarians to help the buyer make that informed decision is communicating with the buyer, understanding what their expectations are, what this horse has done previously, what it is currently doing, and trying to uh, talk about where it's going to go in the future and what type of veterinary risks we may or may not be highlighting during this examination process. Um, risk is something that um, every purchase of a horse involves and every buyer's risk aversion or risk tolerance is different um, and different purchases and different veterinarians with different uh, experiences, backgrounds and future prospects have different levels of risk. And I like to think about risk as likelihood times consequence. So thinking about trying to identify what the current veterinary state of this horse is and then trying to predict the future, which is really difficult. None of us have a crystal ball, but that's what we're trying to do as uh, the veterinarian in the pre-purchase exam. I just wanted to highlight a couple of things there. Um, one, just because as a as a, horse, a lifetime you know horse owner, I think this is so important for any um, sort of newer horse owning listeners out there and in something that you highlighted a couple times that this is really a pre-purchase exam is a snapshot in time it's the horse that's currently you know in front of you not the horse that might be in front of you you know in six months in a new program and and all of that and so i think it's really important for people to um you know have that in mind when they're listening to the, the rest of what you described in terms of of your evaluation um but there's also something that you you sort of alluded to that I'm curious about and that's um the sort of the risk tolerance and um the intended use of the horse and, and how that perspective um can be seen by both the purchaser and and the trainer um and I know generally, um, you know, trainers and purchasers should be aligned on that. But from the veterinarian's perspective, how do you sort of balance balance that um, and, and sort of work well with 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 both of those stakeholders to make sure that everybody's um, sort of in alignment and and understanding the information that you're presenting to them. Yeah, that, that is a challenge um, in terms of, um, you know, risk tolerance or understanding that that, that all horses are, are animals and, and nothing is a guarantee um, and every athlete is pushing themselves to that extent where, um, where challenges can come in terms of veterinary management moving forward. So the key is communication. Um, ideally, when we are doing pre-purchases on behalf of 
uh, buyers, we already have a working relationship with them. We understand them as much as we can, um, knowing what type of veterinary medicine they've experienced in the past, what their aversions to maybe, you know, previous issues that they've had with horses, which may put them off certain things, but not put them off others, whether they are proactive or reactive in terms of the way they manage their horses. Um, ideally, the, the veterinarian working on behalf of the buyer has that relationship. Now, sometimes we don't. Um, sometimes we're called up to, to do a pre-purchase on behalf of um, buyers that we don't know. Um, and obviously, working for them can be challenging, but that's where the communication and taking the time to discuss what they want to achieve, what they're trying to do with this horse and then really having a solid understanding of the industry um, and the sport and the discipline and knowing the likely outcomes of horses going into that particular uh, set of training schedules, that barn, that discipline. Also understanding, um, you know, the the bigger world that we live in, knowing that there's a difference between, you know, pre-purchases in the United Kingdom compared to European buyers, compared to Australian buyers, compared to American buyers. They all have their own different preferences and really understanding the industry that the veterinarian is working in goes a really long way to, to counteract that um that challenge of trying to predict what trainers and um, actual owners and riders perceive to be acceptable risk or non-acceptable risk or manageable findings or non-manageable findings. I think this is a, a, a nice kind of time to just to make everyone kind of understand the imperative that horses don't pass or fail pre-purchase exams um, and, and they're in no way a warranty. Um, you know, we are providing the information around the current state of the horse and trying to allow the purchaser as much information as possible and then an opinion. We do need to give some form of opinion in terms of the suitability for purchase and the suitability for the intended uh, sport discipline level, that type of thing, because what is suitable for one set of uh, outcomes, this particular horse may not be suitable for the next purchaser with different ideas and outcomes. Really good point, Chris. And uh, I think your your article highlights that really well, and you, and you just highlighted it nicely again. And it, I think I find it fascinating because I'm a big like human sport guy as well. And like something like the NFL, like I follow that league pretty closely. And you think about what a physical is in that sport. And I sort of equate that to a pre-purchase. Uh, yeah, in, in the just horse before world. a trade, I always think yeah. about that. You know, yeah, these guys have gone in for a medical, and I always go, "Oh, they're going in for a pre-purchase. I wonder what they're going to find." Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I think in the human sport, like I think it's very much so accepted that like it, it is very much so at that point in time you're looking for something, and it's as you say, it's not a warranty, right? It's not like three weeks down the road or three weeks into training camp, uh, you know, someone ruptures an Achilles tendon, like running. And then they go back to the doctor and say, like, why did you miss this? Like, why wasn't this picked up? Like, it really is. Uh, you can't predict. You you make a best estimate of, like, how this athlete could fit into 
you know, being on an NFL team and like, will their body be able to stand up to it? But there will just be some things that you never really can see coming down the pipeline. Right. And I, I'm sure that's difficult. Uh, yeah, that is true. And, and I think in terms of a, a good quality pre-purchase exam, we are trying to find those things. Common things happen commonly and we know, um, you know, the outcomes that we're looking for and, and things that, that we've found in the past that have been acceptable, you know, an abnormality that is an acceptable abnormality moving forward and things that are not so um, acceptable moving forward in terms of understanding the industry, the buyer, and the discipline that you're talking about. And um, I, I think the one thing that your article does really well that I'd like to dive into now is a little bit the, the topic of conflict of interest. And, and you you sort of touch on that uh, in, in that written piece. And I think especially for those young veterinarians, um, you know, there are a lot of politics in the equestrian community, and especially if they're starting to think about you know, future clients and future opportunities and making sure you don't offend. Like if you're going to go and do a pre-purchase for a big dealer, let's say, and you're you're worried about like offending them if they have a lot of uh, clout in the industry. Um, how would you go about sort of counseling them on how to navigate that? Because I think there can be a lot of those external pressures sometimes. Like they're there for sure to represent the seller, but in the bigger picture, there can be a lot of noise that they sort of need to navigate as well. Yeah, it is very challenging um, for all of us, um, to the concept of true conflict of interest and perceived conflict of interest. And I think you can almost think of it as kind of two parts. When we're early in our career of veterinary, we often don't know anyone. Um, and so that's actually kind of nice because we don't know the buyers, we don't know the sellers, we don't know these horses, we're not sitting next to the ring every Saturday night and seeing that horse jump and then all of a sudden on a Tuesday someone's ringing you up to, to come and look at it to buy it. So the young veterinarian is on one hand nice because their true conflict of interest is less so, um, but then they are dealing with um, the potential politics of how to go about managing the fact that you are working for a buyer, but you're then working in an industry where sellers and buyers can switch all of a sudden a buyer is a seller, then a seller is a buyer and, and back and forth. So in terms of young veterinarians moving into the space of pre-purchase examinations, my um, my main piece of advice for them is to look for a clinic that is going to mentor you and support you as you learn through that process. Um, so a lot of young veterinarians will stand next to senior veterinarians, assist them in pre-purchase examinations, understand kind of the, the way that senior veterinarian is approaching the findings that they see, you know, reading x-rays together and, and, grasping that concept of what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, and learning the process in terms of working in potentially less stressful environments, you know, potentially lower level, uh, less stress type buying environments, learning that ability to communicate the fact that yes you are here for the buyer but you know the the person presenting the horse to you still um will be judging seeing and and processing what you're doing to to examine that horse ideally in a fair manner 
um, that's fair to, to everyone in terms of what you're identifying. So that young veterinarian processing conflict of interest, ideally the clinic around them and the senior veterinarians are around them are putting them in supportive environments where conflict of interest and perceived conflict of interest is going to be a lot less. The key behind conflict of interest is communication, that that veterinarian is being very open in communication towards the buyer and the seller. You know, if there is some form of connection of this horse to, you know, the practice that's doing this, for example, you may have never seen this horse, but one of your colleagues has that is communicated to the potential buyer and to the seller so they understand where everyone is and hopefully we come to communication results, you know, for example, you know, releasing the medical history, saying, okay, one of my colleagues has looked at this horse. I've never seen it, but our practice has. Um, you know, here's what they've done in the past. So young veterinarians being put in supportive environments, understanding that communication is the key. And then conflict of interest for the more experienced veterinarian can actually become more difficult because as veterinarians become more involved in the industry, we're seeing horses buying and selling. We're working for a lot more clients that buy and sell. And so sometimes we're in situations where we do have a, a relationship, whether it be personal or professional, with a buyer or a seller. Um, or sometimes somehow you've been involved with this horse at some stage in the past. Um, being open and honest so that all parties, buyers, sellers, agents for those and yourself are, are very aware that this is where we're at. Today, I'm working for this person, but in the past, I've previously, you know, done this and that, and my practice has done this, but today I'm here. And then understanding that politics of um, doing a fair job to all concerned. Um, you know, you, you brought up being a young veterinarian. I, I know that as a young veterinarian, I've gone out and I've done pre-purchases on horses for people I've never known. Um and then the buyers never met me before, but the sellers never met me before. But then a couple of weeks later, you get a call from one of them and ask you to do it again. Um, and sometimes even that uh, seller, you know, the way you communicate to that seller, whether things have gone well or not so well, can potentially bring you back into um, that their sphere of influence in terms of doing their work. I know it's been several times where I've, given less than ideal uh, outcomes to a seller because for whatever reason, that particular horse with this particular buyer just wasn't going to match. But that seller understood why and then was able to move on with that horse and then was grateful for the fact that um, everyone was fair and they understood why this particular circumstance didn't work. Yeah, I think that's incredibly helpful um, and well put and I think useful to veterinarians at all levels of experience. So um, very nice, nicely, nicely put. Um, do you think you could uh, sw switch gears a bit and just walk us through the five stages of a pre-purchase exam? 
So, yeah, absolutely. Um, when we are discussing the five stages of pre-purchase exam, we are very much talking about the British Equine Veterinary Association defined structured protocol of performing a pre-purchase exam. Um, in several other countries around the world, they have very well-structured protocols, standardised forms, standardised ways in, in order to, to perform a pre-purchase exam. And that can be, be very beneficial. Um, you know, in Britain, they've got these standardised worksheets. Um, back in my home country in Australia, we actually have a, a, an app that comes on an iPad and you, you can't go to the next section of the pre-purchase on you unless you've completed every part of the that section that you're currently on. Even having like seller statements signed off, they, they go on the iPad and they sign off on the iPad before you can go to the next stage of the pre-purchase exam. Um, in the United States, there, there's less so of a structured protocol. Um, and even within places where we have structured protocols, every veterinarian will do things slightly differently. We all take um, our own particular ways. Um, but in terms of the structured five stages um, of a pre-purchase exam, if we break that down very simply, kind of first stage is our physical exam. Um, second stage is our dynamic exam, seeing the horse move on the ground. Um, third stage is our ridden and strenuous exercise. Fourth stage is actually a rest. Um, and then uh, stage five is our re-exam. So if we kind of break that down a little bit more, Every veterinarian is going to be, you know, doing a thorough physical examination on this horse to try and highlight um, the current state of its health and fitness um, and trying to identify any veterinary abnormalities and then putting it into perspective. So physical exam, heart, lungs and eyes. So uh, listening to that heart, um, looking for normal rate and rhythm and normal sound, checking if we've got the presence of any cardiac abnormalities such as murmurs or arrhythmias. Listening to the lungs, uh, taking temperature, so a very basic TPR. Looking into the eyes. Now, actually, the heart and eyes can be places where you are identifying abnormalities that you need to put into perspective. And those are two areas that sometimes we need uh, help from our uh, veterinary specialist colleagues, um, such as veterinary ophthalmologists or veterinary cardiologists. Um, it doesn't happen too often, but when we do need them, we definitely do need them. Um, so far, um, every time I've involved a veterinary ophthalmologist or a cardiologist, it's been a positive outcome, but we needed that extra um, area of expertise. Then looking at a basic uh, overall examination of the horse, uh, looking at um, gum colour, skin, you know, quality of skin, looking for any lesions. Um, in the United Kingdom and Europe, you know, in places where we see a lot more sarcoids than the United States, we're really trying to identify any of those type of abnormalities. Um, and then thinking about overall confirmation, muscle mass, symmetry, identifying any of those type of things, noting them. They're not, they, they are variations of normal or abnormal. They're not necessarily make or break, but it's important that it's noted so that we can understand this horse and move forward. 
And then thinking about our orthopedic exam. Um, most veterinarians have a very um, kind of particular way. They try and do the same orthopedic exam each and every time. Um, I, um, For me, I, I quickly look at their teeth. I don't use a speculum to look at the whole dental exam, but I note that making sure that um, that the purchaser understands I've I've opened the mouth um, with a torch, but I haven't used a speculum. And then I start from head to tail, thinking about palpation uh, and symmetry through the head, then the neck, and then palpating in the back, and then down into the pelvic region. Um, looking underneath the tail, it sounds a little bit silly, but you're looking uh, for confirmation in mares. And then if you've got any grey horses, checking that you don't have any melanomas hiding somewhere. And then orthopedically, I always start with my left fore, then I go to my right fore, and then I go to my right hind, and then I go to my left hind, working my way around the horse. I start from the bottom, work my way up, um, picking up those feet, looking at their uh, size, sh shape, symmetry, quality, hoof testers, palpating tendons, ligaments, um, static manipulation of all those things, comparing left and right, looking for symmetry, and then working through all of that uh, process. And then I typically do that all in the barn and then I get the horse outside, stand it out in the nice sun um, so that you can see the horse from a distance, standing back, looking at symmetry, how it stands, those type of things. Um, whilst I'm examining the horse, I am also noting, um, you know, uh, the temperament of the horse because um, it's always nice to know if they're well-mannered for the veterinarian. So stage one. And then stage two, I call it the dynamic exam. Um, you know, it's the trot up, it's the, the jog, it's the trot up inflections part of our procedure. So uh, trying to find a nice flat, firm surface. Ideally, you've planned ahead and, and have a suitable, safe place to examine these horses that's going to be fair to everyone. You want to see the horse move, but you don't want him to be running across concrete, um, you know, gravel, slipping over those type of things. So I trot the horse up. I walk it up and down. I trot it up and down, just get a gauge of how it's moving, and then performing our flexion tests. Um, it's important to understand that flexion tests are not hugely specific. They need to be put into a big picture. Um, they are highlighting areas that may not be perfect. Um, but as Tim highlighted earlier, every athlete will have something that niggles. You know, um, if you flex up my knee, I, I genuinely walk off crippled because I have a very bad knee from rugby, in, rugby industries injuries. I can still be a veterinarian. I can still play tennis once a week, but I'm not beating Djokovic at the US Open. So my flexion tests are no good, but we put it into a big picture. And so, again, trying to perform our flexion tests in a very standardised way. Um, so I go left fore, right fore, left hind, right hind, um, and I do distal limb and upper limb, uh, breaking them up. Then seeing the horse on the lunge, ideally seeing that horse lunge on a hard surface, which will highlight any subtle um, lamenesses. It's important that we put this into a safety perspective. Sometimes there are very safe places to lunge a horse on the heart. Other times there isn't. Sometimes we actually just need to ask um, the person presenting it to, to trot with the horse, you know, lead it in a circle as opposed to lunge it because the last thing we want to do is, is um, you know, 
be unsafe. So looking at that and then performing some very basic neurological examinations, uh, backing the horse up, tight circles, tail pulls, a few other types of things, looking for really basic ataxia, very low-level kind of neurological examination is is what we're performing. Um, In certain parts of the world, this is um, much more important than others because of the endemic conditions that may or may not be present uh, in those countries. And then we ask the horse to get tacked up and every veterinarian is going to ask um, different things under saddle. Um, and so I always just tell my rider what I want to see. Um, they can't magically read my mind and we've all got very different thoughts on what we should see under saddle. Um, there are places around the world where the ridden exam is not commonly performed. Um, in my opinion, I think it is very helpful. Um, there certainly are occasions that you cannot see an overt uh, lameness or orthopedic impediment Um in hand, but you see it under saddle. Um, so I asked the horse to do a nice big walk around and then some nice loose trot. And then I asked them to come into a 10 meter circle each direction. Um, since moving here to the United States and learning from um, some of my senior, very experienced, learned colleagues, I actually do flexions under saddle, um, which I've found very helpful. Um, it's not something that uh, many people around the world perform, but it's something that once you gain experience with it, it can be very helpful. Um, and then seeing the horse, you know, trotting, um, looking for those overt lamenesses, and then seeing the horse doing uh, some canter work, lead changes, occasionally asking them to do discipline-specific movements. However, in my opinion, this is a- an assessment from a veterinary point of view. We're not here to assess the riding. We're not here to assess, um, you know, can it do, you know, uh, tempi changes, does it have a nice, nice half pass? All of those things ideally have already been assessed by the person who is thinking of purchasing it. Um, and then getting the horse to go as fast as they feel safe. Now, asking a polo horse to go fast around an arena is a very different level of speed than asking a dressage horse to go fast or a nice, lopy, good-looking hunter. Um, But what we're doing is we're trying to, first of all, um, assess if there's any abnormal respiratory noise and then getting the heart rate up to, first of all, kind of have a, a basic gauge of fitness, so trying to do some strenuous exercise relevant to the discipline, checking that heart rate does uh, elevate to a normal level, um, making sure that there isn't any um, exercise-associated murmurs or anything that can only be heard at a higher heart rate, and then checking that the rhythm of the um, heart stays normal. Then our stage four um, we go back, we, we finish riding the horse, we take off its gear, we let it chill out in its box for a while. Um, this is where I often fill in some paperwork. I um, let the horse cool down. I take maybe some blood samples if we're going to be doing that, maybe ask the client a little bit more about the horse and then just observe it a little bit. Um, I mean, I've had, unfortunately, several lovely horses go back into their stable and start cribbing or wind sucking. And for that particular purchaser, uh, that was a deal breaker. Um, and so letting them rest and then a re-exam, checking that their heart rate has recovered to normal and then trotting the horse again one more time to see if 
uh, you know, the, the moderate amount of strenuous exercise has exacerbated anything or made anything better. You know, sometimes you pull a horse out of a box and it's a little creaky. You then work it up and it looks better. Um, and then for me, if I've had any uh, flexion tests that I had a question mark over initially, I'll repeat them again. So that's kind of the five stages of, of what the British Equine Veterinary Association would, would call a, a full pre-purchase examination. It's very similar to the vast majority of um, comprehensive pre-purchases around the world. They may not necessarily break it into five parts, um, but for a lot of the English-speaking world, they're very familiar with this concept of the five-stage pre-purchase exam. Awesome. That was a that was a beautifully uh, articulated overview of those, uh, Chris. It's mm-hmm. r- really just impressive to to listen to that. Um, and then, what I, I'm really curious to hear your opinion on because I know a lot of people will go a little bit further and they want to do imaging, whether it's some yes. ultrasound yep. or some radiographs. And yeah, like just curious to hear your perspectives on, I guess, the utility of that and sort of how you how you interpret that as well in yeah. what has been a sound horse, but maybe there are some of those. Yeah, absolutely. So with the advent of modern diagnostic imaging modalities, high quality radiographs, portable radiographs, digital radiographs, where, where we can do anything very easily. Uh, we do more of it because it's easier. Um, same as, you know, high quality ultrasound on farm and then getting even to, to more advanced stuff. Um, I think we need to just take a little pause at times and just remember that for hundreds and hundreds of years, horses were bought and sold without pre-purchase radiographs and they did or didn't go well. Um, and so we are riding the horse, not the radiographs. Um, and so I think at times we can, radiographs are very important, but we need to put it into a bigger perspective and really understand what we're trying to achieve. Um, is this horse a medalist and it's being sold to go do its medals? You know, is this a young horse that we're buying and has a sales prospect? But where is the sales prospect? Is it being sold in the United States or is it staying in in Europe or is it being sold into Asia or into Australia? Very different risk profiles. And so diagnostic imaging is very helpful. Um, It can uh, allow us to try and prognosticate the potential future of this horse, allow us to potentially predict um, where and how we may have to manage this horse veterinary-wise, which particular areas within um, its system may need some help or may prove a problem in the future. And in terms of um, the diagnostic imaging for suitable sound horses that are doing their job it's about understanding the risk profile for that job for that buyer and its intended purpose so reminding ourselves that risk equals likelihood times consequence if we see something in an abnormality in our in a radiograph that we go okay there is a high likelihood that that's going to become a problem in you know, the the near future, but its consequent is quite low. We should be able to manage that fairly easy and it shouldn't be too much of a drama. That's a different risk profile than if we highlight something on an x-ray and we go, oh, okay, that's not currently causing a problem. 
it has a low likelihood of ever becoming a problem. But, geez, if it does become a problem, that's a big consequence for us. Um, And putting things into perspective of whether this is a horse forever, um, a horse for the medium term to achieve goals, or if this is a horse that is resale. Um, For me, I like to think about um, breaking down our risk when we're looking at the horse um, clinically as well as diagnostic imaging about differentiating um, the clinical risk. So do we have a a low, moderate or high risk in the short, medium or long term? You know, for example, this is a low risk in the short term, but in the long term we're going to have to look after this particular problem. And then putting that into clinical ability to easily manage. Ah, This is a high risk. We are going to have to manage this, but it should be fairly straightforward. It shouldn't be too expensive or, gosh, this will be difficult if it becomes a problem. And then thinking about our risk for resale. You know, we've got things that could be very much a low to moderate risk clinically to get this horse doing its job but they actually might be a big risk resale because certain buyers and certain, you know, markets are very put off by things. Um, you know, there's parts of the world that just if the horse has kissing spines, it's over. No one's buying that horse, even though we know a lot about that. Um, we've got, you know, the, the classic example of navicular radiographs. You know, when I graduated veterinary school, it was all about, you know, grading and counting the number of uh, synovial invaginations and their shape and all of these different types of things. And we were very critical of them. Whereas now we, with the advent of MRI, we know a lot more about them and we understand their risk profile. And so for certain buyers, an ugly looking navicular is ah, it's no particular problem because it's got well-balanced feet and we understand that but for other certain markets and other buyers they're still in that if the navicular bone looks ugly on radiograph it's it's going to be a high risk for resale so um i hope that that kind of makes sense diagnostic imaging is trying to prognosticate for the future but none of us have a crystal ball um and i think sometimes when we look back in the past we realize that Maybe we were over-interpreting things that we shouldn't, and a lot of the times we just didn't know what we didn't know. Um, It wasn't long ago that uh, digital radiography of the neck in the field was just impossible. You just couldn't get it. And now all of a sudden everyone gets neck radiographs, and truthfully as a profession, the veterinary world doesn't know enough about prognosticating uh, neck radiograph abnormalities. And it's something that we are going to learn in the future, um, whether we are currently over or under interpreting that, we just don't know the answer. And that's where we as veterinarians need to be honest and communicate with our purchasers on the things that we know and then the things that we don't know and put it into a big perspective. And what do you think about imaging and and not just radiographs, but I think in a lot of disciplines and depending on the price point of of the horse, um, ultrasound is also very becoming, you know, much more common. So obviously, depending on um, the purchaser's willingness to um, pay for, you know, additional components of the pre-purchase exam, what do you think about these tools also as creating a sort of baseline um, so that... 
Yeah. Absolutely. So knowing your horse, the better you know the horse, the better you know what you're starting with, the better you're going to be able to manage it in the future. Um, additional diagnostic imaging has its pros and cons. Um, diagnostic um, ultrasound as a survey ultrasound is becoming more common. Um, it has its pros and cons because the static nature of snapping a radiograph, this is the image, is a very different modality than the dynamic, user-dependent, highly interpretable modality of ultrasound. Um, you know, when we're teaching younger veterinarians to ultrasound things, you know, we teach them that if you just hold that probe one or two degrees in the wrong way or you're just not quite in the perfect spot, you turn a normal-looking ligament or tendon into something that looks very abnormal. Um, you know, the the way I try and teach young veterinarians in terms of ultrasounding the proximal suspensory region is you work hard to make this look as good as you possibly can. If you can't make it look any better than it possibly can, then probably there's an abnormality because it's easy to just use your own imagine a scope when you're, when you're doing ultrasound. It's a little bit of why we get taught veterinary in vet school how to take radiographs and that's it. And then we go on conferences that are three, four days long just to learn how to ultrasound the stifle, the, the pastin. It's a very complicated area. So ultrasonography is very helpful. It can uh, really complement um, the physical exam because we're palpating these ligaments. Our fingers are not perfect. Um, they're very good. A trained veterinarian's palpation skills are the, are the key of what they do. Um, and the ultrasonography can adjunct that, can, can quantify what we have. And then also a little bit like um, our x-rays, quantifying what we have so we can compare in the future, really important. And then also putting into bigger perspectives. There are plenty of things on ultrasound that will never, you know, may, may have changed their variations of normal, um, or they may have had an injury in the past and it's perfectly functional, but it looks ugly still on ultrasound. And so quantifying that so you can compare it in the future is very helpful. Um, you know, th there's even people that are putting horses in MRIs um, as, as a pre-purchase protocol just to quantify what they have so they can compare in the future. You know, from my experience, and, and it's pretty discipline-specific and region-specific, but um, blood work in, in the U.S. is also fairly common. Do, do you think that it should be a more common component, component of pre-purchase exams? I think anything that you add into the pre-purchase exam, you have to think about how is it going to help me make a decision? Um, a fit and healthy horse that is doing its job is highly unlikely to have um, abnormalities on its blood work. But if you don't do it, you don't find those occasional things. Um, you know, uh, just this summer, we had a perfectly cracking looking pony, um, elite level pony, take its blood and all of a sudden its liver is shot. Um, you would never have known. Um, so, Yes, if it's if it's easily done and easily interpreted, um, and not easily overinterpreted, I think that can be very helpful. Um, in terms of um, a risk based decision making process, um, you know, if 
clients, for example, are in the, you know, in certain parts of the United States and they've been plagued by Lyme, you know, maybe they want a Lyme tighter to compare to in, in the future or maybe they've been plagued by certain other kind of identifiable um, ailments on bloods, um, you know, they, they want to have their own peace of mind. The challenging thing of that is that a lot of these survey bloods are potentially just highlighting exposure, not necessarily disease, um, and can be easily overinterpreted um, and can at times muddy the water. So I think the key in terms of blood blood tests in a pre-purchase exam is how is it going to help the client make a decision? What are the risk benefits of it all? Um, they're not hugely expensive, but um, it is very helpful at times, but it needs to be made on an individual basis with everyone understanding what the results are going to help us with. Um, drug screening, of course, is, is amongst that. Um, there are certain parts of the world where drug screening can be challenging. Um, there's other parts of the world where drug screens are taken and then sent away to a central lab and then stored. And so if something goes wrong with the horse, then you analyze at a later date. Um, and then there's other systems, you know, commonly like here in the United States where you pull the blood, you send it away five, six days later, it tells you what um, the horse has currently got in their system. So um, I think when we talk about blood uh, screening, drug test screening, it is protective for all concerned, in my opinion, the buyer, the seller, and the veterinarian. It can benefit all of them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been uh, just fascinating to, to hear sort of your perspectives on this, Chris. It's not, I think, often that people actually get to like sit down and listen to uh, a veterinarian sort of walk through the steps and get their perspective on everything when there's not maybe the stress involved with <laughs> they're also looking to, to buy a horse. So it's kind of nice, I yeah. think, for yeah. people to, to sit back and to list this episode. Um, we've taken up a, a lot of your time, so we'll just wrap it up with one more question here. Uh, and it's uh, a question we ask everyone. And if you could speak to a horse and that horse could understand you, what would you want to tell them? Um, I mean, first of all, I'm not quite sure. I've thought about this. I'm not quite sure if I'd want horses to be able to talk. Um, because I don't know whether that whether that dressage mare I really want to listen to her, um, <laughs> or, or or that or that hunter gelding that is just like is just whinging all the time, um, or that elite level show jumper that is just a bit of a fig jam. Um, <laughs> that's an Australianism, which is just fuck, I'm great, just ask me. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure if I'd want to listen to some of those elite level show jumpers just yeah. constantly telling me how awesome they are. Did you see me <laughs> jump last night? Wasn't I amazing? Um, but I think for, I think probably the main thing that I would love to communicate with them is that I'm here to help. I know you're scared. This may hurt a little, but I promise it's not going to hurt too much. And if you just trust me, we can get through this and I can fix you at the end of it. Because, you know, those needle phobic horses, I I truly would love to know what happened to you. Why are you needle phobic? Who did this to you? Um, the reason I, I kind of really empathize and sympathize with those is I am horribly needle phobic myself. 
Um, I was a sick child. I hate needles. I hate hospitals, like literally cold, clammy skin, pale, almost faint type stuff. Um, I'd love to know. So, yeah, I think the main thing would be I'd love to be able to communicate and say, look, I promise you this is going to hurt just a little bit, but we're going to get through it and I'm going to make you better at the end. Just You just trust me. It's going to be a bit shit for a while, but we're going to get you better. Um, and then to know who did this to you. Why are you so needle phobic? Why do you hate vets? Which mean vet did this to you so I can go <laughs> kick them butt? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's a... That's a really good answer. It's maybe the most creative answer that we've had, right, Nicole? So uh, <laughs> very sure, much appreciate sure. that. But yeah. uh, thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time. It has been uh, just fascinating. And uh, I'm sure we'll continue to bug you in the future for different topics because uh, this was just great. Yeah. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me um, involved. I think what you guys do is excellent. And um, it's nice to to bring all parts of the profession together. It's not um, veterinarians, us versus them we're trying to all trying to trying to all achieve the same thing and pre-purchases are challenging um and um it's something that we need to allow everyone to understand better because um you know when veterinarians aren't if we don't if we don't let horses get through pre-purchases exams we we stop the industry the only the only reason we have an industry is because people buy and sell horses to achieve what they want to achieve. Breeders breed the horse to then sell it to someone who then sells it to someone who then goes and achieves their athletic goals. We're a part of that process to try and allow them to make informed decisions, but it's vital to remember that we are just one part of the many, many, many different factors that needs to go into buying a horse. <laughs> well said. Thank you. So my hat's off to Chris. Uh, just he did an amazing job of outlining pre-purchase exams, like so thorough, so detailed, like and going through those five steps of a pre-purchase. I thought that was just really well articulated, and it's really this will be a really good resource for I think you know young veterinarians, but also people who are maybe buying their first horse, selling their first horse, and want to understand the process a little bit better, so there are no surprises when the day comes, and as the information the vet. Flex is interpreted. So I, I think it it ticks all of those boxes. And I think that as, as well, just fascinating to hear his perspective on it. He's a very experienced veterinarian. He is very involved in a number of different um, aspects of the profession from, you know, education and knowledge translations to doing the FEI stuff to just working with individual athletes and uh, which is what I think most of the vets that we uh, would typically interact with do. He's been around the world. Um, so just a, a really unique perspective. I love uh, hearing how he sees uh, the sport and hearing his you know, different opinions on different topics. I thought that it was really, really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And as um, Tim said earlier in the episode, uh, his Instagram is definitely worth a follow at Elliot Equine Vets. And we'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, for those show notes and the links to today's guests, you can go to www.sporthorsepodcast.com. You can also follow us at Sport Horse Series on Facebook and Instagram. Um, please do give us a follow. Um, check out um, all of our posts about our latest episodes. 
um, comment, leave us messages about more episode ideas that you'd like us to cover. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the App Store and search Horse Radio Network. And here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy.